Mach 3, give me crew show on 2, 3, and 4. Mach 3, give me start line 2. 5 electric. Mach 3, give me start line 1 and crew show on 7 and 9. Mach 1, crew show 7 and 9. Mach 2. I gotta do something. I hate weapons. Super Ops, line 3, Red Bull, Avionics. Super Ops. Line 7 is code 3 for Flickas. Hey, so I started a Patreon because, frankly, this stuff's getting expensive. Nothing will change the podcast or the blog if you don't subscribe, but if you want early access to episodes, monthly AMAs, episode shoutouts, voting on podcast topics, and all kinds of 20 Years Done gear, head over to patreon.com slash 20 years done. Okay, so today we're joined by uh, Curtis, also known as Chief Master Sergeant Retired Ott. And uh, Curtis has been on a few episodes now. Uh, you're welcome to come back and kind of review his episodes. He did an introduction episode, and then later on he talked about micromanagement, which I found was really insightful. Uh, but Curtis reached out to me after episode 30 aired, the episode I did with uh, the first episode I did with Mike Sissel about maintenance culture because he wanted to add to it. And I found his uh, comments about micromanagement so insightful, I just couldn't say no. So. First of all, thank you for your time and welcome back to the podcast, Curtis. Hey, you bet. Hey, and I just want to say that Mike did an awesome job of uh, articulating and I could have been, you know, uh, prouder of, I guess, if you will, of how he approached his interaction with the airman against the uh, pole. That's that's a hard thing to to articulate later in life a lot of things you look back on things and you don't really necessarily remember the the bad things you end up remembering mostly just the good stuff over yep. time and uh i just want to say it was awesome that he was able to clearly articulate where he saw his problems because not everybody sees those in, in themselves and and frankly you know i'm sure that there are people who listen to the podcast and they go man Chief, you weren't like that at all, or I, I don't remember you saying that, or whatever the case is. I, I think it was really great that he was able to come forward with that. You know, and that's I think that's part of this whole podcast, and I think that's why it, it does so well. Because, first of all, I think we do really good for a bunch of dumb maintainers. Uh, I think that's <laughs> I think that speaks volumes that I think there's a lot of maintainers that have trouble articulating their experiences, their thoughts, or what their motivators were for doing certain behaviors. And I think we do a really good job of walking through the thought process, what parts of the environment might have contributed to that behavior. And ultimately what, what Mike and I both did that episode uh, and in episode 31 was kind of walking through shame. And it's really mm -hmm. hard to be honest with yourself and objective with your behavior and, and admitting shameful things to a public audience. But ultimately mm -hmm. I think by doing that, I think listeners will see their own behaviors in the story we tell, and maybe we can save them from the same shame. That's really my right. intention. Um, and then the, the, the second point I really wanted to make was it, it takes a lot to, to come on and do that and of his own time. Um, and really all of my guests that come on, I'm, I'm so grateful that they want to engage on this, take time out of their day to talk to me. But really what it boils down to is I think all of us kind of crave that mentorship, that ability to pass along lessons learned that when you separate from the service, there's a stark divide uh, between 
your post-service self and your in-service self. And it also goes back to, you know, what the Chief Master in the Air Force recently said on our coffee talk was, I think this podcast and what I do and, and, and you and other retired people, I think what's seen is that we are somehow disgruntled or angry or frustrated or attacking the service. And I think she even specifically said something to the effect of, you know, they attack the service that gave them so much in life. Like, I'm not discounting that my life is manifestly better for my military service, the financial security, the growth that I did, the benefits I derive. But also that doesn't mean that I, I am barred from wanting it to be better for those still serving. And that my criticism, while it might be harsh and profanity laden, um, it's because my audience is fucking maintainers. And that's why I put the E for explicit lyrics. And that's why I have uh, the, the word fuck right in my intro. <laughs> There's not a maintainer listens to this and goes, I'm really fucking offended by all the profanity in this podcast. It's not a fucking thing. If anything, it's a little light on the smoke pit profanity that you normally would see. And I think people that are outside maintenance will misconstrue that harsh language and the bluntness and directness of the message to be you know, disgruntled. But I think that's the environment and maintenance, directness. You have to be direct because you don't have time to lead people to the answers. And very often you have to be direct because if you're not, someone might get crushed by a stab or something like, yes. Uh, and I think that's also what goes, goes into this is I feel there is an urgent problem in the air force with mental health and suicides and how maintainers are treated in that environment. And I am going to be direct because I don't have time to hold someone's hand to lead them to an easier to digest answer. Because as I've been writing about this stuff, how many, how many maintainers have killed themselves? How many times have I seen the maintenance badge with a black ribbon over it since I started writing about suicides? It is an urgent problem. And if that requires me to be direct and blunt and forceful, sorry. If it goes back, it goes to what I suspect are going to be the bullet points for today. If you can't handle that type of direct communication, you're probably not fit to lead is what I'll say. Right. Yep. All right. I'm off my soapbox now, <laughs> Curtis. That's, that's, uh, that's no, that those were, those were good words. Those are good words. Um, so uh, culture today, or uh, the culture, I guess, of the air force, you know, there's, there's history behind a lot of the things that, that are, affecting the airmen today you know the airmen today aren't affected in the same way as the airmen of say the korean war or the korean conflict or the vietnam conflict you know or even you know desert storm desert shield desert storm and or the airmen of the 90s the cold war airmen uh that type of thing we've we have over the course of the years increased in the treatment of our airmen. There's absolutely no question about that because I was raised essentially in the Air Force by uh, Vietnam veterans and they shared some pretty remarkably tragic stories. You know, the one thing that's been bothering me is, you know, the the removal of the WAP system, you know, the mm -hmm. way that airmen promote, promotion system. And why that came about, and there's, you know, I have a litany of other things I want to talk about, but I'm going to just kind of start with that one because it's my one of the guys that I grew up under, Brady Flincham, he wasn't promoted for years mm -hmm. because he wasn't one of the good old boys. And without the WAPs being a thing, it was the good old boy network. Mm -hmm. It was, yes, it was the commander's decision, but it was the commander who decided. And if the commander didn't personally like you, you were never going to get promoted. 
And that's how it was. And when he says the best thing that ever happened to our, our service was the weighted airman promotion system. He said that was just the best thing to come about. So what's the counter argument to the WAPS system? Boy, you know what? I have a hard time dealing outside of that system because all of my career was yep. inside of that that system. And when they started going to only getting promoted based on your EPRs, yeah, yeah, yeah. boards only. Okay, now once again, that's another problem because you know some people can't write very well, and the argument uh, is some people can't study very well, mm-hmm. and that was me. I have you know essentially a learning disability. It took me way uh, longer to study for the weighted airman promotion system test than it did for a boss that I had who read it, literally read the PFE cover to cover the night before, went in and tested and scored, you know, in the mid to upper 90s. Yeah, that's me. So for for E6, what I did was I put the PDG on the shitter in my bathroom in October. And every time I took a shit, I'd read. <laughs> And I got through it two and a half times before my test date. And then I, I was swing shift. I slept 37 minutes, got up, went and tested and scored in the 80s and made it by 20 points. And then for master, I was testing on a Monday and I sat down on a Sunday and I read the PDG cover to cover and then went in and tested. I think I made it by 20 points. So I think it's really interesting that typically the rebuttal to the WAP system is Sometimes people aren't good test takers, and that's going to hold up their promotion. I find it interesting that you're an advocate for the WAP system, while at the same time admitting that you're not a good test taker. So that's a you're fairly unique in that. I struggled so hard to test. One of the things that you know I was going to talk about was experience and uh, you know apprenticeship and that type of thing. But I sewed on staff sergeant my fifth year, five years to make staff. That's early Today, for somebody making... like you, right? I mean, even for you, what what, what year was that? That was 1990. Now, so that was five years was a fast burner in 1990 for staff, right? Not necessarily, okay. no, because you know I was a buck sergeant for a while. Okay, mm-hmm. we had buck back then, uh, and now I made senior airman below the zone mm. because that wasn't a test; that was a board. You yep. met the board, and I'm not kidding you. There were, I want to say it was like 20 stripes given out that That's year a shitload. for our for our squadron. Well. We had, what, 650 crew chiefs in one squadron. Really? You had 650 crew chiefs in a squadron? Where was this at? Yeah. Little Rock. For C-130s? We had well over 100 assigned C-130s. Holy uh, shit. And we had three three sections, uh, Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie section. And each section there had two trucks. And so there was, I, I want to say it was like over 650 crew chiefs in just the organizational maintenance squadron alone. That's wild. And the field maintenance squadron, there were some more crew chiefs that were assigned to the AR and the hot duck area and that type of thing. But that's one of the reasons why I so made it in five years because I started a little earlier because I made senior and yep. zone. Well, also you had time in service, time in grade points, right? Sure. Yep. But, he, but and here's and here's how I made it. I made it. You tested once a year. But you met you met the criteria for promotion two times a year. Interesting. Okay, so you met it, you tested six months later, then the second board, the B board, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And then you gain points based on that. Interesting. Yeah. And so I tested twice and made it on carryover, is what they called it. Mm-hmm. Carried over to the next six months. So there was two cycles in a year for, for staff. And I made it on carryover. 
that's so, how I made it. So did you feel like WAPS was unfair because people like people like me that can just read the book and nope. hold it all in their head and then go in and then just are like, I'm a great multiple choice test taker. It's just like a yep. natural talent I have. So you made it up in other ways. Okay. You made up that difference in other ways uh, is how I looked at it. And it was, it was the whole person, the, the number of points that you got for your uh, decorations, mm -hmm. the time and service, the time and grade. And there has to be something said for the time that you spend in, in grade. I agree. And in service, that's important in everything else. You know, we'll go to the apprenticeship real quick. According to the labor department, Apprenticeships last anywhere between one and six years. Mm -hmm. You know, for you to grow a seven-level staff sergeant, it takes six to seven years to grow a craftsman. Okay, here's what we're doing: we're promoting these young airmen today at as early as three years. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're handing them a non-commissioned officer stripe. That means that they have to be a leader, right? Mm -hmm. We're, we're making them be becoming a leader. At the same time, we're expecting them to become a craftsman mm -hmm. in three, four years, if you will, you know, 15 months to be a seven level Yep, for all of that. But still, that's pretty early. At the same time, we're asking them to lead airmen. Mm -hmm. Okay. We're asking them also to do all of the paperwork, EPRs, mm -hmm. decoration recommendations, all of those things, and fix airplanes. Yep. And we're expecting that at the seven level experience. Why? Because they're staff sergeants, they're non-commissioned officers. And you can fold that all the way back to the VSI SSB reduction in 1992, where the Air Force is still just scraping yep. to try and get those staff sergeants seven levels. And to this day, and then the 2014 force shaping, force shaping, that was my argument with the with the chief master in the Air Force. Every time I bring it, well, not every time, but very often when I bring up the force shaping of 2014 as I'm laying out my case, which is typically from 2005 to 2019, I'm making my strongest arguments of mismanagement of the force. Invariably, somebody comes along and goes, oh, this goes back to the mid-90s when we fucked that up too. And oh, yeah. I believe them, but I don't have that essay because I joined in 1998. And also what you're talking about, about the inexperienced staff sergeants. I joined the Air Force in February, 1998. I I made staff sergeant, I was told I made staff sergeant August of 2001. So that's three, three, uh, three and a half years exactly. I got red X's as a staff select right away. Mm -hmm. And I sewed on staff sergeant June of 2002. So right at my four year mark. And I thought it was so cool that I could sign off tires and panels and stuff. And then the first time they wanted me to do like an engine removal at three and a half years. And even though I'd done a lot of engine removals, I hadn't done everything in engine removal. I mean, I'm sure this isn't some grand secret. Like when airmen are learning complex tasks in a team, very often they'll learn how to do the fuel strainer and then every engine they're going to go to the fuel strainer because that's the thing they know how to do and it's efficient. Yeah. They can get it done and they don't know how to do the throttle. They don't know how to do the Coke bottles. Right. They don't know how to do all of these things. And which is not the end of the world because you have a staff sergeant that knows all these things. It's looking it over and a bunch of airmen that are all individually very proficient at the one or two tasks they know how to do. And maybe it'll be a little bit of cross pollination from one, one little ingredient to another. But when I was at three and a half years with red X's running mid shift on my own, and I had an engine, install turned over from mm -hmm. swing shift my eyes mm -hmm. were as big as fucking saucers mm -hmm. 
when I realized that I was in way over my fucking head mm -hmm. and I didn't have a good leadership toolkit. Like I thought I did, mm -hmm. but I didn't. I, I was 22, 23 years old or whatever it was. I didn't fucking have anything. Exactly. And I didn't know it. Exactly. And the Air Force, and the issue was, you're right. That was when they, the Air Force promoted at that year, 70% to E5. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you remember the Great Staff Giveaway. Mm -hmm. People refer to the mm -hmm. Great Staff Giveaway at like 50%. They don't remember the 2001 Great Staff Giveaway where it was like 69% where it's like, do you know how to read? Do you have an right. Article 15? If it's yes to the first and no to the second, congratulations, Staff Sergeant, go grab yep. your toolbox. And they're, the fundamental problem with the Air Force is they think a paper seven level is as good as an actual seven level. And I'm not sure... You know, I'm getting tired of calling the Air Force criminally negligent because it's popped up in like the last three fucking episodes. But either they understand that that's not true, in which case they are being negligent with pretending paper staff sergeants and paper seven levels are, or they're so grossly incompetent that they don't know it. And I don't know which one of those two is fucking worse. Yeah. So, so they're confronted with the budget. And when they take a look at it, there's nowhere else to cut. And they discover that the manpower is the largest cut for the money. And so mm -hmm. what they do is they come in and they cut it and they say, well, we'll make up for this. But unfortunately, it won't be on my watch. It'll be on somebody else's watch. And, yep. you know, now I can say that I, I did this thing. Now, it, can I say that beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's the truth? No, I can't. I can just surmise that that's, that's what's going on. I'm pretty certain that, you know, it's the, well, here's what we're confronted with. We're confronted with this, this huge budget reduction, and we have to keep the equipment flowing. Yep. And if we get rid of this system or this group of people, we can pay for the new equipment. Yep. And then we'll just you know, hire more later. Well, you just, this is what I had, I said at the table, you just can't replace the people. It takes seven mm -hmm. years to grow back a seven level staff sergeant that we just sent packing out the door. That's yep. seven years of experience. That's seven years of technical and leadership experience that we're letting go from our air force. Why are we not looking at why don't you reduce the number coming in? Though I understand you have to have a large number of, you know, you have to you have a manpower goal that you're achieving. Yep. Well, why don't we work on fostering and growing what we have? And you know that goes to I go back to the the labor de departments apprenticeship. If you if you pull it down, take a look at it. It tells you essentially what the apprenticeship is all about. Before you become that craftsman, you know, you're customizing the training. They're working on retention because you've, you know, given the knowledge uh, from OJT. And they, these, um, you know, the, the folks are getting hands-on training. They're getting an education, working on their career, uh, getting their credentials, their seven level. Uh, they're getting all of that stuff. And it's pretty basically laid out. And it, the Air Force follows along with that. I want to say when it's convenient. Oh yeah, because what you're what you're describing is the CFETP. You're talking yes. about TBA and 623s. These are the tasks. And if you if you're in the civilian sector and you're going to become an electrician working on construction progress mm -hmm. and, and you're going to get certifications, 
you're very, very likely as apprentice going to have a training plan of tasks. I need to help. I need to teach you how to install a power box in just the foundation. I need to go over, and it's also you need to prove proficiency with wiring up mm -hmm. these particular socks. Yep. GFCI, GF, GFI outlets, all these things. But the difference is that craftsman that's training that apprentice, he ha he's insurance and bonded. There's an yep. accountability if it's shitty right. work. Right. A, a personal accountability and yep. his own reputation, right? Yep. Correct. Like if a staff sergeant in the Air Force is training poorly, and I'm not even going to lay it at the foot of the staff sergeant at the time, so he may not know how to train, he might not have the time to right. train, he might not, whatever it is. But if he trains someone poorly and pencil whip uh, 623 CFETP TBA, which spoiler, that gets pencil whipped literally all the fucking time. And I don't know when chiefs get dumb on that to think that it doesn't happen but if at some point they lose sight of the fact that on paper it's inflated over reality nope we know it we know it okay but here's but here's what we would do you know we we knew it happened and i i would be a, a blatant bold-faced liar if i said oh i didn't know that that was happening right i knew it was happening and i can assure you that it happened in my 623 I remember the first time I signed off an ADG and called QA, my pro super, who used to be my supervisor, is like, hey, are you signed off on your 623s? I was like, you know, I'm looking at my 623s. It has GFS, it has fuel pump, it has PTO shaft, it has all these things on it. And I'm signed off on all of those and I know how to do them, but I've never done an ADG. But I don't see ADG in here. He's like, oh, you got to go to the 797s because it's not in the CFETP. So we added it here and oh, you're not signed off on it. Let me sign you off on it real quick before QA comes out. So like I had done an ADG and signed off all the X's. I wasn't signed off mm -hmm. in my 623s. And then my pro super quickly signed me off. I think backdated it too. So mm -hmm. it didn't look like it was that day when QA came out. And that's a, that's a normal, like that story that I'm telling, there's not going to be very many maintainers that haven't had something very similar happen to them. And this reaches all the way back 35 years that I can confirm. I, I would show up and get my 623 handed to me and say, initial all of these things. And I'd look at them and said, Holy crap, I've never done this before. And so I would sign it off and then I would make sure that I either read the TO or I went out and, and took a look at what it was that I just got signed off on. So at least I understood what it was that they were talking about. Now, the only time that I can assure you that 100% of my training was not pencil whip was when I became a certified mechanic. Every mm. single one of those things, I had to be show my proficiency at a very high level. Other than that, I did it once, I was signed off. Uh, and once again, as chiefs, we know and we understand that. And if they don't, if they're saying that they don't, they're full of malarkey. I don't think they're saying they don't understand it, but what they're, what they're doing is they're supporting a system that is operating only off of paper and numbers. And maybe it's a backroom chief conversation, like what you were talking about with Chief Master in the Air Force, where you just pull aside and it's all chiefs in the room, you're like, hey, this isn't going to fucking work. But when you leave that room, you can't say that to your senior. Right. But it really wasn't. We held them accountable for if they failed the quality assurance evaluation. Okay. Did they know how to do the task? Yes or no. And if you, if you tell me yes, that they knew how to do it, then we're headed down an administrative path. And if you say that they didn't know how to do it, I'm going to be headed down another path that's going to, you know, pretty much who signed you off. Yeah. Undress the person that signed them off. That doesn't happen either, by the way. It, well, okay. It, anymore. 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 
I had a had an airman from uh, A1C that was out training airmen on a doing the connectivity test on Chaffler mods. Mm-hmm. And leading up to the f- step one, <laughs> there were six pages, six pages of cautions, notes, and warnings leading to step one. And nine times it said to ensure that all Chaffler flare modules were removed. And somewhere he just jumped ahead to step one and was out there with several other airmen. And the young man didn't know uh, in the cockpit, didn't know what button he was pushing and hereby thankful that he didn't because he was pressing it multiple times. And the moment that uh, the airman who was qualified and he had done it before, you know, mm-hmm. he had done it not just once he'd done it a few times before. So he, he knew what he was doing. However, right. it wasn't, he wasn't following along. He pushed the right button, the correct button and a flare came out. It ricocheted off the tire, off the chalk and shot across the ramp and sat in the middle of the ramp and burned. That's kind of a big deal. Uh, oh, it was a big deal, especially <laughs> when I'm coming back from lunch and I'm driving down, dri- headed towards the uh, maintenance unit, and I see fire trucks. And I get out and I walk over and said, you know, what happened? And they told me what happened. And I said, okay, I want his training records. I want his boss. I want everybody in my office. And before I even got started, I pulled out my Miranda rights, mm-hmm. and I read everybody their rights. And I said, if you choose not to talk, that's fine. I said, but at one point, we're going to get to the bottom of this. Mm-hmm. And we did. And the young, the young man who did it, he explained, you know, everything that happened. He was more than willing to come forward with it because he was a responsible young man. And, you know, unfortunately, we held him accountable for what had happened. I also held accountable his uh, supervisor and the section chief. Uh, and let's just say that their, their uh, promotions were not forthcoming. Because hmm. it, it became apparent that they hadn't properly trained this young man and then signed him off and set him hmm. up for failure. And I had several different perspectives like that as I went through my career. And sometimes, you know, uh, you only train, retrain when it's needed and you want to know the whole story. You know, and when I say the whole story, not just the story of what happened, what's their experience level? Yeah. How long have they been on shift? How long have they been at that base? How long have they been in the Air Force? What was their ASVAB score? Oh, right. Were they, they at the top of the mechanical or were they at the bottom of the line, you know, where, where the line is? Yeah, mechanical is my lowest score Yeah, when I joined. They, they didn't care. It was, it was my highest. Well, and here's the thing. The recruiters don't care about that per se. You scored this, and that's yep. the line. You scored right at that line, mm-hmm. and that's the Air Force's standard. Anything below that, and you couldn't get in. But anything Correct. at that or above, yes, you meet you meet what they determine as the standard for that curfew, if you will. Which is it's, it's not the right way of looking at it because it's an aptitude test. It's trying mm-hmm. to find what are you naturally going to be good at. So when if we get you in one of those jobs, you're going to be like a fish to water. That's the thing that you most easily will be able to adapt to and perform in. Mm -hmm. And we look at it as a bottom threshold score Mm -hmm. to slot you into all of these jobs that you are not necessarily inclined to do, but you're capable of doing. It's not an armed forces capability test. It's an aptitude test. Yep. And so having gone to a school that I didn't finish, 
uh, because I decided it wasn't for me. What I learned was, is the number, the Air Force has X number of slots. They have to fill all of those billets. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if they get in that week, they get in a thousand people and all of them test well in the aptitude of uh, administration, but there's only five slots that week that they can mm -hmm. fill. Only the top five go to that slot, and then they work their way down the line after that. I don't know if it's top five either. I think no, it's no, the it, first five that meet the minimum standard, which is it, still it, backwards. And it, and in some cases, <laughs> I, guess, I guess you know what I'm saying is yeah. that there's only five that can go to yep. admin. Correct. Well, you know those there's going to be five that are going to go to admin and it may be the top five it may be not the top five it may just be they reach into a bucket and say these are the these are the five that are going to go what if we had better retention though if we had better retention wouldn't the air force be able to be have, have a lower recruitment threshold and be able to get people that were more aligned to their aptitude to the career fields like if if we weren't hemorrhaging people, and I say hemorrhaging mm -hmm. broadly, right. yep. like if we weren't if if we had to basically like everyone wants to stay in, and now we're going to start the Article Fifteen, like commanders are literally going to have to start turning off reenlistment codes mm -hmm. just to get numbers down, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Like if if we did that, I feel like it would be a lot easier to get yep. people in the jobs they want because we would have it would be a pull system at that point. Yes, we wouldn't have a vacuum because we have a vacuum. And in that vacuum is sucking people into all these different career fields, they may not be best suited for. But one of the hardest jobs to get people into today is into the maintenance field. Because you don't have you don't. And, and you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick on industry a little bit here. Industry doesn't help us anymore. Okay, and I will use the automobile industry. You can't work on your car anymore. Yeah, everything everything is either proprietary, or it's so complicated that you can't work on it. There isn't that much interest in a mechanical background. You know, from from where I sit, from my conversations with people, you just you just don't see much of that anymore. And to retain people who don't have that knowledge, if you will, is a little bit more difficult. You have to throw different things at them, you know, why, why would you want to stay in maintenance? What can we do to keep you in maintenance? Do you want to spend some time in support? Do you want to be a, a unit deployment manager? You know, we still have, we still have positions. I think that comes back to maintenance culture to, to bring it back it around. Like if the culture of maintenance was healthy, cause I am not mechanically inclined and I eventually became mechanically inclined, but it was hard as fuck. Mm -hmm. in the culture I grew up in because I made staff so early. Mm -hmm. It was hard to say I didn't know something because of ego and pride and stuff. And then we were resource restricted mm -hmm. and corner cutting was cooked into the culture anyway. The accountability was fucking all wonky where mm -hmm. they wanted you to pencil whip something. And then when QA found it, you would get him the fuck up. And it's like, I I'm getting pulled in all these directions. I suspect that even the non-mechanically inclined that might happen to get slotted into aircraft maintenance might re-enlist if it was a healthier culture. Yep. I, I can't agree with you more on that. That's, that's absolutely positively the truth. Uh, a healthy culture uh, will, it allows the people to grow. And this is where leadership has to become brave. They mm -hmm. have to, they have to grow a pair. They have to step up and they have to say, you know what? We're going to hold that airplane down and I don't care. Yep. And when, when the heat comes down, you go, you know what? It is what it is. 
we have to fix this airplane and I have to give my people time to fix it. So I don't make, I don't make it, you know, 12 turn 10 today. You know, we make a 10 turn eight and that's going to have to be good enough today. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, and sometimes I would always say, you know, the chiefs are looking for E10 and there's mm -hmm. no such thing. So stop trying to be the E10 and be more of the chief that you make mm -hmm. because really no more promotions after that. You're, you achieve that for a purpose and be bold, be brave and trust your people. Trust in what they can do uh, for the mission. And if you trust in them and you take the time to give them the backing that they need, they're not going to be as, you know, as skittish about going out to the flight line. And, you know, you guys talked a little bit about when, uh, when Mike was, you know, yelled at the one kid for being on the uh -huh. phone inside. And, you know, you guys were talking about whether or not he was you know, more afraid of the NCO than he was mm -hmm. going out on the flight line. If the leaders would give the time for that individual to get the, yep. the experience that they need. Now, that's going to go very far in, you know, that person not sitting there, not wanting to go out to the flight yep. line. But we always have to keep in mind that there are people who are just lazy. They really are. Right. And I'll tell you what, this guy... I, we, I gave the listeners just a brief window into him and in episode 31, which you haven't heard yet because when we're recording this, it's, it's airing tomorrow. We touched back on that guy again because uh, we also pointed out that he was excluded from the tribe. Like in aircraft maintenance, there, you have a tribe on shift. And if you're outside that tribe because you're the guy that always insists on following tech data and the rest of the people mm -hmm. don't like it because it adds to the night or you don't smoke or you don't go to the parties or yep. you don't drink or you don't cuss or maybe you're mm -hmm. religious or any number or maybe you're just a little bit slower you're not as confident you're not as cocky because we also know the fight line just it, it promotes this ego centric sort of arrogance that swagger that comes with maintenance too and if you're not that person it might be so this guy not only was he was he not confident in his maintenance abilities he'd also been excluded from the tribe since i had ever known him and he didn't feel comfortable asking to learn because he probably has been treated like he was dumb or a failure by everybody he went up to mm -hmm. and at that point he his performance in that story mike was telling about him sitting aside on the phone yeah that was definitely substandard performance but i'm less interested and this isn't to to downplay what you're saying, but mm -hmm. my focus is not on, let's evaluate his performance and how he's hindering the mission. How did this individual in particular get here? Yep. And let's eliminate all of our environmental contributions to his underperformance. So that way, if he is still underperforming at that point, yeah, that's a personal failure mm -hmm. and that's his problem. Yep. But he was never lazy. He would work tirelessly hours and hours and hours and hours. He just was not good and he was excluded. So it's like, he just, he was doomed. I mean, I, I think he's still in and I think he's still trucking along and I'm sure he's going to get out at the first opportunity to, you know, retire. But, you know, he's the type of person I think about when I think about maintenance culture, that if you're not perfectly adaptable to that environment, and I think a lot of us think we're adaptable and what it is, we just internalize the abuse of that environment and start yep. projecting it and manifesting in other ways, which is not healthy, but he didn't mm -hmm. adapt very well to the environment. And it's just, just a fucking miserable struggle. Yep. And believe it or not, these were conversations that we would have at, uh, you know, the, the senior NCO Academy, you know, we would have these conversations just like this about 
these types of, of individuals. And, you know, we would go through scenarios on what we would do to bring them into the fold. If you couldn't bring them into the fold, yeah. then what would you do? And when I went to the senior NCO Academy, it was a, it was essentially a, I don't want to say a free for all, but it was very much a, an open conversation. And I don't know if we ever really came to a conclusion on what we would do with, you know, folks who would underperform or, you know, what have you, the maintainers in the room were, you know, yep. write them hard until they, you know, until they, until they break. And was that the right attitude now no because we had folks in there that were from the support group that had a different perspective and that different perspective changed some of our conversations and but it's one of the reasons why i loved pme i for me that's one of the reasons why i hate pme (laughs) because it feels like while we are all in the air force we all the same rank we all have skill like there's a lot of cultural similarities from finance to maintenance Mm -hmm. the same uniform all that stuff the reality is when I go to PME, money, many of the skills are trying to teach. I just go, that doesn't work in my work center at all. And so when you're talking about, you had a bunch of different disparate AFSCs gathered to talk about what do you do with underperforming airmen, that seem, that conversation almost seems pointless because what works in dental is not going to work in CE, is not going to work in security nope. forces, is not going to work in pararescue, is not going to work in maintenance. And nope. I'm not sure how useful it is to hear about, at that point, it's just a bunch of senior CEOs bragging about what they do in their own work center. It's not digestible to other work centers. So what you do is you you sit back away from it all. And this is what I would do in PME. I'd sit back away from it all. And I would listen to what everybody had to say. I would digest what they were saying. I would say, you know what, that just doesn't work in aircraft maintenance. But the essence of what they're saying, I get the essence of what you're saying. I can't, I can't do exactly that in mm. my work center. But maybe if I did a derivative of what you said, then maybe I can influence a change or whatever. And it was just about, it was just about uh, sharing ideas. And sometimes you just, we just, you know, and, you know, my first ones, I was in there, you know, breathing fire, you know, and all that and didn't really pay attention until, you know, I had a, I had a conversation with, with uh, my boss who was Chuck Prater and he would, we would talk about this as we would go on our long runs. He would, we would chat about listening to what other people have to say. He was a smart man. I wonder if the, if, the, if those responses from maintainers, because I've been one of those people, I just did it just now saying what you're suggesting doesn't work in, in my maintenance environment is because maintenance culture, which is really what we're talking about trying to get a change in, like let's, let's we, we recognize it's not perfect. And I think I'm being exceptionally fucking generous by saying not perfect. <laughs> right. I think it's fundamentally broken and it needs an overhaul. Uh, and I think a lot of times where, where I would say that doesn't work in maintenance is because I didn't have the perspective that we could change maintenance culture, in which case this could work if we adapted maintenance culture to be better. So that way, what you're suggesting, we could slot into our sort of environment. But, you know, like some of the some of the notes you had sent me was you talked about how you had interacted with airmen that you know, you would, you were giving them an LOR or they were getting processed for an article 15 or something. And you could see they were just not cut out for the air force and their job or mm-hmm. their, at least their job. And yeah. you kind of said, how did he get to my unit? 
Exactly. When I was with a with a uh, maintenance unit, I had a uh, an airman do something incredibly stupid on flyline. Can't remember what it was, but mm-hmm. if you had to come see me, it was incredibly stupid. Okay. And and uh, so he showed up, and of course, you know, I was in in no mood for having the conversation. Uh, and I say that because. I expected more, I, you know, I mm-hmm. had high expectations and I expected more from my airmen and from my NCOs and all of my leaders. And when the young airman didn't really understand what was going on, he got his first time in his life ever had somebody chew him out face to face first time in his life. And all of a sudden his demeanor changed. I stopped what I was doing. I pretty much, you know, tapered off because I saw that this was absolutely going in the wrong direction mm-hmm. and it wasn't making a point. And so I kind of tapered off, you know, sent him and his supervisor out of the room and everybody looked at me kind of funny because I knew that something wasn't right. And I mm-hmm. said, I told the section chief, I said, go be with him. Don't let him be alone. Mm-hmm. Picked up the phone call for sergeant said, come get this kid. I think we have a problem. Mm-hmm. Come to find out, you know, he did and he wasn't, cut out for uh, being in the Air Force and subsequently was released. Now, I'm thinking to myself, how did he get all the way through basic military training, technical school, and, you know, training and route to coming to, to my organization? And at no point had he been confronted in this manner. How did that happen? You know, wh- where did we where did we <laughs> fall down? I know the answer to that, and it, it is the common thread for the entire Air Force in all things. The production is the only thing that matters. So much like we have to produce the sorties no matter what, it doesn't matter what our resources are, it doesn't matter what our experience is, it doesn't matter anything. We will get those fucking sorties no matter what. The recruiters will get the fucking numbers that the Air Force needs no matter what. The TIs will graduate the numbers they need no matter fucking what. Tech school, same thing. And that's how you get it because the Air Force is probably the most critical problem with the Air Force is they will always sacrifice quality for quantity because quantity is the measurable metric that they're fucking held accountable for in all things. And quality is intangible and you only know quality's fucked up when you have a human interaction one-on-one, you figure it out. And you can't report that. You can't put it on a piece of paper. You can't do any of that. That's what, that's what you're trying to do with CFETP. You're trying to figure out the quality of the fucking person. And by the way, we lie on that too. Like we're constantly chasing quantification with a within complete disregard for quality. And then we wonder why everything is all fucked up because we've only been chasing the numbers and it's everywhere and i'll go back to the 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 bravery and the boldness of the leaders uh, are the ones that don't allow quality to suffer for quantity sure allows quality over quantity uh and but how do you how do you get promoted for being a bold leader compared to a leader that can produce quantity we promote almost exclusively on quantity not quality once again it depends on your leader I'm talking about systemically though, right? Yeah, no, and, and this is systemic. Okay. Mm-hmm. It is systemic. And just to go along in that, a friend of mine who worked for me became a chief mass uh, command chief mass sergeant 
sent me a note. He says, you know, Curtis, um, lieutenants and captains who were micromanaged will become micromanagers as colonels and generals. Okay. Yep. And as we look at that from that from that perspective, good leaders produce good right. leaders. Okay. And I had good leaders pretty much predominantly all the way through with a couple of minor with a couple of exceptions that mm-hmm. I learned a great deal from. But not all of us put quantity over quality. No, I agree. And so those are that's where those bold leaders have to come in. You have to get them to trust the people that work for them. But they themselves had to have been led in a manner in which they would allow themselves to be a, a trusting leader. You know, I had to change. There's no question. I had to change. I was a bull in a china shop as a, you know, as a young airman mm. and a, and a uh, young NCO. I was a bull in a china shop. I would just go, had a quick temper. Yep. And then I had leaders that would, you know, calm me and say, well, that wasn't very, that wasn't very professional. And I would reflect internally and think, okay, I just let that person down by not being professional. And so I learned a great deal about myself and how I had to change in order for me to be a better leader. Now, let's just get one thing straight. I was still very much a bull in a china shop as a chief. And there be, you can ask any number of people who were around me. But one of the things that I think that they would all agree on was that I was fair and consistent. And there were times where, you know, even though I was brash and abrasive, there was a point in time where I knew when I had to back away from the brash and abrasive and be more comforting and consoling if you, Mm -hmm. that's, if that's the term that you want to use and looking at my production staff and say, set it down. What? Set the aircraft down. We're not going to, we're not going to fly this airplane. If it's, if you don't think it's right, don't fly it. Don't fly the dang airplane. If you don't think that we did it right. Cause the last thing we need is to have that airman standing in front of an accident investigation board, yep. just telling them what they saw. Yeah, and what my super said, and what my super knew, and what everybody knew, and this is what our unit does. But putting them in a position where they may have made a mistake, or they couldn't get it fixed, right? Or we didn't have the time. Let's not put them in front of an accident (laughs) investigation board. Preach into the choir. I've been in front of one of those. They suck. When I moved to EOR, when I was at by far the pinnacle of my career, when I moved from lead pro super to EOR super, which was quite a uh, promotion, <laughs> I remember I had some guys in the truck with me, and I'm sure some of them probably listen to this podcast too, and they're really going to enjoy this story. And I remember my AMXS chief, who was a pile of shit, he required me to personally inspect the aircraft at EOR, which I don't know. I don't know what the fuck he was smoking, but boy, what a dumb fucking call that was to have me who's angry at a bad leadership team and and knows volumes and tomes about the F-16 to be the personal gatekeeper of every sortie taking off from the squadron. Boy, like dumb. That's just the wrong call. But anyway, I'm going to get off that soapbox. But I remember I looked at a, uh, a hydraulics on a jet and it was low. It was like five low. Right. And I went to the guy and I said, hey, you already looked this over. He's like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, but the hydraulics were low. He's like, yeah, but it was only five low. We typically don't send it back unless it's 10 low. And I said, okay, 
So that jet crashes for a hydraulic problem, right? Now you're going to go in front of an accident investigation board. You have two choices. The first choice is you can admit that you violated tech data and that you knew the hydraulics was low and you have to basically admit to a crime. Or you can lie to the accident investigation board and you hope that the crew chief that launched it out doesn't tell them what the hydraulics were at when it left. I said, what my goal is, is for us not to have to lie to an accident investigation board or admit to a crime. That's it. If it's good, it's good. If it's bad, it's bad. That's the end of the story. And I think I, I think a lot of maintainers don't view their actions through the lens of, what would I say to an AIB mm -hmm. or an SIB? And I think mm -hmm. if you do, like that's why we document forms so meticulously. That's why we do IMDS so meticulously. Mm -hmm. That's why we have CFETP 623s, TBA, to prove that we know how to do these tasks. That's why you have a, a, a crash survival flight data recorder. That's why you have a seat data recorder. That's why you know all these things. And so if shit hits the fan, the investigation can figure out what went wrong. And the, also the reality is, especially on F-16s, I used to tell you guys this all the time, like that motherfucker will crash for any fucking reason. It's a single engine plane, like it's old. At the time we had student pilots, like this motherfucker will go in the dirt on a good day. And you may not have been the cause, but they'll look in the forms or they'll start asking questions and, and they'll write in the active investigation report. Even though this wasn't the cause, there is a culture of non-compliance in this unit and they might name names depending on if it's SIB or AIB, and you might get fucking hemmed up anyway. So the reality is you need to document forms, you need to do your maintenance, like that jet can crash at any fucking time. Yep. That's how I would do it. Yep. Yep. We had a we had an aircraft in Kunsan. We were getting ready for the ORI, and uh, the uh, IG inspector, or one of the IG pilot inspectors showed up to do a, um, a familiarization flight in the in the area. And he took off. And the moment he took off, uh, as he was, as the gear went up, his oil, his engine oil pressure, you know, disappeared. Scary. Oh yeah, he he did a left turn, punched the tanks off, and came yep. around and landed. And when he pulled in, oil was running Ooh, from the belly. He got airplane. lucky. He got real lucky. He absolutely did. And it came back. And uh, these were GEs, and the mm -hmm. uh, number one bearing was about to let go and mm. he actually got it in place and shut down before the bearing disintegrated so he saved the motor too Mo motor and the plane he saved he saved the motor the plane um and his life you know, yeah and his life <laughs> people and, on the ground oh my gosh it was it you know and it was scary and when we were having the conversation and the the uh maintenance squadron maintenance operations officer who later you know became a friend of mine he he became the impound official and he they, they said we're going to change the engine you know on this right away of course we're you know three days out from an ins from the ori mm -hmm. and one of my biggest concerns you know i hey airplane came back first concern check the second concern that i went and i took a look at was to ensure that the tanks left the way that they were supposed to you yeah. know and i went up and i took a look at it and I turned and looked at my uh, pro super, my lead pro super, and I said, well, I guess they did it right this time because we were having a problem with, you know, ensuring that the tanks were uh, installed properly. Oh, the aft pivot fitting aft and stuff? pivot fittings, everything. And Scary. I looked at him and I said, and I said, well, they did this one right. 
you know, and those, those were the words out of my mouth. Do I regret having said that? Well, no, it was more of a, thank God they mm-hmm. did it right this time, you know, and now let's use this aircraft as this is why you do it right. Yep. Don't half-ass this job because you want everything to come off clean. And this thing punched away perfectly. So we're, we're running out of time, Curtis, mm-hmm. and we didn't hit anything, <laughs> anything on your list. Still a good conversation. But uh, so all this means we're going to end up doing another episode anyway. But I'm also interested in what, what you, when you listen to episode 31, because mm-hmm. that's an expansion of episode 30. I'm interested in that as well. So we might have a better, uh, I mean, we talked maintenance culture, but it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't a lot of the stuff you sent. Um, but I guess, right. is there any final thoughts for this episode? Because we're already at an hour. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and here's my final thought is, is the culture is dependent upon the leader. Mm. Okay. It is absolutely hinges on the leaders in that chain of command. What are they doing? How are they leading? What are they expecting? Are they expecting uh, too much? Are they not expecting enough? You know, where do they hang their hat on the uh, level of commitment from their people? You know, did they learn from, you know, uh, a incompetent leader or did they learn from the most competent leaders out there you know that's that's where the culture is derived from is from the the leadership chain how are what are they expecting from every single person that turns a wrench out on that flight line that shows up to work are they giving them the time are they giving them the resources are they expecting what is to be expected not some unrealistic expectation based on the amount of people that they have and the, and the training that they possess. I think that's a good point. And I think it also speaks to something I think a lot of people, myself included, forget. The culture of your organization, at every supervisory level, you, you set the culture below you. And even though it doesn't feel like it, a supervisor with two airmen, a, a DCC with two assistants, you, you set that culture for that aircraft, for that shift, the section chief sets the culture for the section. The supers set the section, you know, the AMU mm-hmm. chief. I used to love it when my, my AMU chief in 2013, Chief Roberts, I knew that was his AMU. It was his fucking house. Yep. And if anyone from the squadron came down and tried to tell him what to do, he'd be like, I'll take it under consideration. But until you fire me, this is my unit. Mm-hmm. And it was that's I think that was one of the more frustrating things I saw in my career was AMU chiefs that were just the levers of AMXS. They were just the mouthpiece of AMXS. And it's like, yeah, you need to be bold. You need to pick what you want your environment to be. And that's really what a lot of these podcasts on maintenance culture is. It's like, when I talk about the abuse, when me and Mike were talking about how abusive we were, that was the culture we were creating. We were perpetuating that. Even though it didn't feel like it, that was a choice we made. Yep. And a lot of it's because it was the easier, that was the easiest way to get the result we wanted, right? Once again, that was us focusing on quantity of production instead of the quality of production, the, the quantity of, of how we treat people instead of the quality. But it takes bold leaders, like find the culture you want mm-hmm. below you. The only person I'm not talking to is an airman basic. Anybody else that is still in the military, or even if you're out of the military and you're a supervisor or something, if, if you have anybody below you in your chain of command, you set the culture for them. And the, the hard part is that means that if there's, there's toxic culture coming down, you become that umbrella for them. 
you you take it and you roll it up and you hope the person above you changes and above you changes and above you changes or as you move up your umbrella gets wider and wider mm -hmm. but unfortunately creating a, a healthy culture in an otherwise toxic culture requires personal sacrifice it requires personal buy-in you need to put your skin on the line your career on the line you need to do all those things because you that's how you create breathing room because as soon as you choose your career over your your organization over your people below you you're letting the bad culture into your culture and you failed you've utterly fucking failed and i know it's a tough thing to do to ask you to sacrifice for your people but that's really what it boils down to to be a leader that's what a servant leader is is putting your people's wants and needs ahead of your own yep so it's not an easy task but there is no excuse why you can't change the culture where you're at there's just not nope and chiefs you're never going to get promoted again stop trying yeah okay well curtis man it's always a good time you, you can send me more and we'll do another episode yep. too but i mean i also figured out like after i after we correspond a little bit i was like i'm gonna be doing a lot of episodes with curtis too so uh write your notes and stuff and then uh mm -hmm. we'll we'll come back and attack but other, other than that thanks for uh joining again you're welcome thank you for uh inviting me on okay adios <laughs>